previously on Storyological. <laughs> Let me find the find the quote. Find the quote. Find the quote. That's <laughs> not that's not the quote. But a lot of people don't remember the Republic was about a, a party. party that was he was it? throwing for Socrates. <laughs> I don't remember that. Yeah, yeah. It certainly is the sweetest and most beautiful story I've read about children being murdered. Hey, Mickey, you're so fine. You're so fine. You blow my mind. Hey, Mickey. Hey, Mickey. This is Storyological, a podcast about amazing stories that we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. My pick for this week is a story called Sabbath Wine by Barbara Krasnoff. It was in Clockwork Phoenix 5. It was a 2016 Nebula Award finalist for Best Short Story. And it was recommended to the world and discovered by me uh, in Sam J. Miller's post of his year in reading. It is a story I found both warmly and precisely observed. It has a very loving and knowing feel to it. It is about a Jewish girl and an African-American boy living in 1920s America right at the moment when prohibition has gone into effect, so where alcohol has been made illegal, a time of gangsters and bootleggers, you know, one reality hidden within another reality. And in the story, these two kids, Malka and David, befriend each other, and mm-hmm. very early in the story, David announces that he is dead. He gets right in there with it. He's just like, I hope you don't mind, but I'm dead. At least that's what my dad tells me. That line right away where he says he's dead and then ultimately kind of backs off. You know, it's just what my daddy told yeah, me. Yeah, how would I even know such a thing? That is the kind of line that felt both kind of sweet to me and it's touching on the bond between parents and kids and the trust we put on it, but also all of the... The ramifications of that trust. Mm. Well, the story engine is built around the idea that the the girl Malka wants to have a proper Sabbath dinner with David, and her father does not really believe in such things anymore. <laughs> uh, but is ultimately moved. Not and since so that one time. In just the arrangement of this event. Uh, which, as we all know, is a very good story craft technique. Let's have a party. And then the story will be about arranging the party. And then the story will end with what happens at the party. Uh, it's, it's really, it's a classic structure. Plato used it all the time. But a lot of people don't remember the Republic was about a party, a party that he was, was throwing for Socrates. <laughs> I don't remember that. Yeah, yeah. And the turn at the end of the story is that, you know, alas, the little Jewish girl also dead. Mm. And the story ends in a very perfect rendering of a beautiful tragedy, mm-hmm. the, the, the paradox that these two fathers are watching their two murdered children play on the balcony outside the apartment as the sun sets. It certainly is the sweetest and most beautiful story I've read about dead children or children being murdered. And and that was what I really enjoyed about it, that that she handled those, those deaths and that bittersweet energy that comes from those deaths like both of the fathers are in conflict with themselves about well should I try and help my child to move on to the next life whatever that is or should I maybe just keep them here with me for one more day one more week and so I get to spend more time with them and and I love how that conflict becomes even though it's never directly expressed 
it's very obvious to both of them the struggle that they're both going through and they kind of just have this moment where they they accept each other because they know they're both struggling with the same thing and it's incredibly mm-hmm. powerful the way that is observed and in a in a story craft sense the way that there is one scene where there's a great reluctance on the part of Malka's dad to go to you know the african-american world to go to that side of the city mm. and and one scene where after he's made that decision well now david's dad is reluctant it's simple yeah it is it is a very simple structure a very simple story but it is um powerful in what it touches on and it it made me think of um a post I saw on social media somewhere, just a random thing. And it was the lies I told my four-year-old today. And it was about Santa and about the tooth fairy. And then kind of the last one on the list is, and I will always be there for you. <laughs> yeah. And I just lost it. And I was like, oh. That's, that's, that as we were so talking true. about earlier, was one of my favorite ground truths of reality is that we lie to each other. Yeah. And it's how the world works. It's what makes it beautiful. It's also what makes it actually, you know, it's what makes things actually happen. Right. But the uh, lies... But it's also... Yeah. Oh, go on. Um, but it's also how we separate from each other. It also renders so much pain. There is an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer in the last season uh, called Lies My Parents Told Me. Oh, okay. That is about about that yeah yeah mm. the lies that we tell that we choose to tell and that we choose not to tell are kind of what defines us what lies do we choose what what lies and fictions do we choose to accept and structure our lives around and just a very minor example of that i was chatting to our three-year-old niece at christmas time and we were talking about father christmas coming and she was really excited and the somebody had cut up little bits of carrot and left it out on the patio outside the window and was saying that you know this is because the reindeer had come and eaten the carrot and I started to say this and I just I couldn't complete it I I just couldn't tell her this bare-faced lie and so I kind of but I also couldn't disabuse her of of that notion because other other adults were kind of telling her that this was the truth and I felt this horrible conflict about shit how okay, I'm not a parent, but it must be incredibly difficult to pick what lies to tell your children and at what age to maybe shepherd them out of those lies. Of course, the the question comes in a way, like why lie at all? Why tell children things that aren't true? Presumably one reason, like when we watch Crash Course today, uh, those philosophy videos that the Vlogbrothers and people have put together, they talked about... One of the, the, the supposed natural laws that Thomas Aquinas came up with was the idea that we educate our offspring. We teach them how to navigate the world. And of course, however problematic it might seem, lying to children um, in a way teaches them the value of hope and the paradox of hope. Because hope is really one of the brightest of paradoxes and that it's a seed that only really ever flowers in the darkest of times. Mm-hmm. Teaching people the value and believing in things that don't exist teaches us the value of believing in a future that we can't imagine as possible. You know, there were essays written after Trump's election about not just hope, but radical hope, the belief that you can build a world better than it seems possible to build. Right. And that's, in a sense, where Santa Claus and all of these stories comes from. It comes from a world that is better than it is possible to build. 
and yet in lying to our children, there there is something there. Uh, there there is a reason why it is important to learn how to lie to yourself. Yes, yes, for reasons of of hope and avoiding depression and reasons <laughs> of. Well, I was thinking about that the research that says that we have a ridiculous level of optimism bias. Like we fundamentally believe that tomorrow will be better than today, unless we are what we call depressed. And if you are depressed, in fact, you have a much more realistic understanding of how the future relates to the past and mm. that it will be somewhat similar which often and broadly it is yes yeah um, and as we know i have a lot of issues with that particular study <laughs> i just want, can i read the a little excerpt from i think that yeah i think that this relates to to hope and how the how marcus father acted on hope we were idiots we had no idea how many there would be how organized hundreds were hurt and killed my neighbors my friends somebody hit me I don't know who or with what. I don't remember what happened after that. I He paused. I do remember screaming and shouting all around me, houses burning, but it didn't seem real, didn't seem possible. I ran to the synagogue. I was going to get Malka and we would leave this madness, go to America where people were sane and children were safe. Safe, repeated Sam softly. The two men looked at each other with tired recognition. It is a bit problematic to refer to things as lies just because they are literally not true. Because there are lots yeah. of truths that exist in things that might be lies. And in a way in a way that is both terrible and wonderful, hope outlasts death. Hope outlasts mm -hmm. reality. And that is not because it's not true, but because it is true in a way different than, say, death is true. And something I loved in this story is the amount of time spent in in-betweenness. Not like an upside down land and stranger things where everything is horrible and there are monsters, but in betweenness, you know, these kids are alive, but they're dead. Mm -hmm. They came to America, you know, uh, Malta and her dad came to America to be safe, and they are, but it's also not a safe place for other no. people. And in the same way that alcohol is traded, you know, the very framework of the time is that alcohol is still available and traded, but it is also illegal and mm -hmm. you're not supposed to drink it. But churches can get it, you know. Um, and I love how that even brackets the reality of what it was, perhaps, to be African-American in the 20s, that in a way you existed in a reality outside of what the dominant reality was supposed to be. And yeah. so in the same way liquor was smuggled around, you were always looking for ways to smuggle yourself in to reality, you know, smuggle your way into an existence. And that's part of the poignancy of this invitation from the Jewish family to the African-American family is the invitation to share reality to together. Share that same reality. Yeah. I was thinking while you were talking about that, about the Sapiens book and Yuval Harari talking about what separates us from other mammals and other animals is our ability to believe in things that don't literally exist. But they exist because we share a belief in them, like society. Yeah. I mean, is that a thing unless people believe in it? No, absolutely not. It's only a thing because we all behave as if it exists. Speaking of existence, um, something I love in the story is something I think of as allowing characters room to breathe, uh, allowing moments when there is everything and nothing, allowing people to just be. For example, there is uh, there's this description of when Malka and David first meet, and it just... Briefly, just this image. It was late on a hot summer afternoon and people were just starting to drift home from work, lingering on stoops and fire escapes to catch any hint of a breeze before going up to their stifling flats. Or this moment where Malka is on the street and it just says, 
She swung slowly around the pole, holding on with one hand while David stood patiently, his hands in the pockets of his worn pants. It gives an amazing feeling of space. Yeah, yeah, space. And, and to me, what's important, what, what makes a, a good description, a good, a, a good rendition of space is that it, it has within it its own story. It, it's not, you know, it's not just space. It is characters and life. It is full. When uh, Malka first comes home and we see the home that, that her and her father have built, it says, she stood in the main room that acted as parlor, dining room, and kitchen. It was sparsely but comfortably furnished. Beside a small, beside a small wooden table that sat by the open window, there was a coal oven, a sink with cold running water, a cupboard over against one wall, and an overloaded bookcase against another. There's so much that you can do with an image by just showing us what's there mm. and making sure the details you pick don't simply render geography, but render history. My pick for this week is The Future Looks Good by Leslie Necker Arima, uh, which was in Pank, and I found through Carmen Maria Machado's recommendation. Oh, so this is the episode of recommendations. Yeah. 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 And okay. did you know, people, you can recommend us stories too? It's true, yeah. There's, you just have um, to tweet us. Yeah, the, the tweet us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tweet us at tweeter.com. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's definitely the address. Um, so this is the story of Zinma and her family history that collapses into a single moment of violence as she enters her sister's home one night. And it is the story of her background and her father and her mother and her grandmother and how the lives that they have lived the poverty and war that they have lived through have all led to this moment where major spoiler uh, her sister's husband no her sorry not husband very significantly not husband her sister's partner um, comes in and because she looks kind of like her sister from the back shoots her dead yeah women are more or less indistinguishable to men yeah it's true yeah yeah it's true um the thing that i really enjoyed about this story was how it cracks open the idea of heredity and how scars carry from one generation to the next generation in this particular story it's about one specific family but you can see it across nations and communities as well and i thought about the sister who uh, Azinma is mistaken for Bibi, is named after a country, Biafra, Biafra, I don't know how that's pronounced. I don't know, but I've written a little thought bubble here about it. <laughs> okay. Um, she's named after this country that never existed because the Nigerian civil war ended up with that side losing and they weren't able to secede from the main part of Nigeria. And I thought about how Nigeria was created by the British going to Africa and kind of drawing a arbitrary line around a bit of ground and saying okay we're all yeah. a nation now let's let's figure this out yeah the audacity of britishness and then they leave and if the whole thing collapses into civil war a few years after they leave are you saying the british are what we're holding that thing together <laughs> oh my god <laughs> <laughs> you're such a shit stirrer <laughs> What I was actually trying to say was that the British were responsible for fucking that shit up in the first place. I see. Yeah. Um, and had they never come along and drawn this arbitrary line yeah. around a particular piece of land, then then the conflicts would have, I'm sure there would have been conflict, but it would have arisen differently and it would have right. um, not been imposed so much from the outside. And 
And that's what this family is experiencing as well. So inside of that period of time around around the Biafran War. There was a child. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to remember the mother's name and I couldn't remember it. Mom. The mom's name is mom. Okay. Uh, so inside of that period, she finds herself suddenly not the affluent citizen that she she was before before the war. So this is this is the mother of Azinma. One night she finds a small farm tucked behind a hill, and there she encounters a man stealing the new yams that would have been hers. There is no competition. He is well fed and strong, and even if she tries to raise an alarm out of spite, he could silence her. But he puts his finger to his lips and he gives her a yam. And being her, she gestures for two more. He gives her another one and she scurries away. The next night when she returns to the farm, he is waiting for her. She sits by him and they listen to crickets and to each other's breathing. When he puts his arm around her, she leans into him and cries for the first time since her engagement party many months ago. When he puts a yam in her lap, she laughs. And when he takes her hand, she thinks, I am worth three yams. And when I read that, I... I don't know quite how to articulate it, but the idea of a woman's price being three yams made me feel very sad for her. Wow, I thought you were going to go the other way about a, a woman demanding her worth, but <laughs> I see what you mean. Three yams really doesn't seem like a like good value. You read it as a as a definitely implicit like, you want to have sex with me, so give me two more yams so we can have sex. And I think, right? Whether it was specifically about the sex then or about you know, a longer term bargain of would you be a good provider for me? I think that is probably true. I think a part of me lived in the paradox of that moment of like, just, you know, like if somebody comes up to you at a bar and offers to buy you a drink mm -hmm. and your response to them is, I'm worth three drinks, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Like if you want to have some time with me, you better give me three <laughs> drinks and then I can give them, you know, like Let's it's... Line up those martinis, two yeah. olives in each. Let's right. Go. And so inside of, in you know, looking at it from that side, I read it more like this, just a moment of even within a situation that might seem problematic, somebody demanding. Mm. Yeah, it, and it, but it is so wrapped up in that situation of, of women having no value or very little value. And then that is comes down the generation to uh, the boy that then kills Azinma because he does not see that, that the women in the world or in his life have any value. Yeah, and it, it is that question that at the end of the story, I was thinking a lot about narrative structure and free will because broadly speaking let's say there are two kinds of narratives there's a narrative like the iron giant that is a forward-moving narrative about some unknown thing coming into the life of someone and then you know scene after scene in a linear direction choice after choice being made drives the story forward until mm -hmm. there's a final decision that sets a new reality into existence and and inside of that narrative is embodied the very line that comes in the middle and end of that film where the, the kid has taught the strange thing that came into his life, this iron giant, that you are who you choose to be. You know, the very definition of a kind of total, maybe libertarian free will, like the, the belief that you can choose who you are and what you want to be. Right. It's an ending that sort of flares out like the like the mouth of a trumpet to endless possibility yes though what happens to make iron giant a particularly brilliant form of that narrative is two things one the giant is blessed and cursed with amnesia he can't remember who he was programmed to be and he was programmed to be a weapon so it it problematizes it because in the sense that 
he is most free to make that choice because he forgot who he was. He forgot his past as though the only way to have true free will is to somehow break yourself from the previous version of who you were. And, and also because his choice to be who he is is sacrifice. Mm. So the moment of freedom is the moment of his death. Again, the only way to be free is to somehow cut yourself off from history. Um, I mean, there's other kinds of narratives, just like this one, that is a single moment unpacked through history. So there's a story called, uh, I believe, Bullet in the Brain or Bullet in the Head by Tobias Wolff that entirely takes place in the moment where a guy standing in line at the bank is shot mm-hmm. during a robbery. And the story takes place in the moment as the bullet travels into his brain. Right, like that ZZ Packer story we read the other day. Yeah, that is also a story, yeah, yeah. Um, the difference being that in this, in both this story and Tobias's story, the person is dead at the right. end of the story. Yeah. Whereas ZZ Packer's story, kind of like Iron Giant, ends in a moment of choice and endless yeah. possibility. Whereas the Tobias story in this story, the narrative is set up so that the hero of the story has no present choice all right. of their choices have already been made for them both by themselves and by other people I thought, yeah i thought of that structure almost like a like a lowercase e like it starts in one position and then you go back around and see the, all the things leading up to it and then it shoots past your original position mm-hmm. into the future or into no future as in poor as in this case what is both incredibly invigorating to read and the fact that this one moment unfurls in a kind of tour de force of just moment, 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 moment. Mm-hmm. And it's one of my favorite things to read sometimes. In, this, in, in a way, when I finish the story, I also experience the deep dissatisfaction of that kind of story because it can also leave you feeling bereft and like there was yeah. no hope from the very beginning. You know, the opposite of Sabbath wine. Yeah, and, and both of those kind of structures do that single effect thing that you've talked about Poe mentioning um and do it powerfully but but you're right yeah that is a feeling at the end of this of hopelessness and uh I thought about (laughs) the 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 kind of it's a there's this game that you get like either in fairgrounds or in horrible corporate team building days bungee running I don't know if you've seen it where you have inflatable lanes and you attach a bungee oh, rope yes. around your waist and yeah. then you have to run as far down the lane as you yes. can and try and leave your baton as far down the lane as you can mm-hmm. and this baton for america <laughs> baton yeah um and that's what this story but as you try and leave that baton as far as you can obviously the bungee rope yanks you back and that's how i felt this story treated family history and and community history like each of these people is trying desperately to to step away from the history that has brought them to where they are. And every time, every time they think they've got out, it just keeps pulling them back in. Yeah, you know, the, the name of the story is The Future Looks Good, but it was not very long before you're reading it when you're like, everything here is about the past. And so it, it all reinforces the idea, much like your bungee race, that the future lives in the past, that the, right. the limitations are already built in to the the struggle Uh, and how i I hadn't thought about the title since looking at the story again and now i'm realizing how kind of sullenly ironic that title is is. yeah and it also how also i mean the miracle of stories that the the two stories we're talking about this week in a sense explore the exact same reality which Mm -hmm. are the limits of hope and but come at it in different perspective in different ways and neither one is more real than the other or more true than the other they're just both 
They're just both. They're just both, yeah. Do you know Kurt Vonnegut's rules of writing? I sure do. Yeah. So the first rule is to use the time of a total stranger in such a way that he or she will not feel the time was wasted. Which I thought of in connection to something we've talked a lot about in the past few episodes about time bombs and about how this story, like almost all good stories, they meet that rule. They have a time bomb in one way or another. They Mm -hmm. use our time in a way that it doesn't feel wasted. But all of those stories do it in different ways. And this story, one of the things that she does is that each section from the beginning on continues with this refrain, which is she doesn't see what came behind her. It's only at the end of the story you finally find out what came behind her. Of course, like any good story, the time bomb goes off in a way that you don't expect. The The thing that you're there, the thing that you're promised at the end, you get, but in a way that you don't expect. And it mm-hmm. reinforces, I'm going to call it um, Chris Cameron's first rule of writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, which is that I Every writer you're naming is, it after yourself and not after story logical. Oh man, you're so self-centered. It's not a joke if I don't make it super self-centered. Okay. <laughs> um, Continue. Well, yeah, let's say um, Cameroon's first rule of stories. Every writer is more or less trying to tell the reader where things are going and then trying to get there in the most interesting, surprising, and inevitable of ways. God, I hope so. And when they're not trying to do that, that's when I'm normally bored. Yeah, yeah. But I think, to me, the nature of the rule that I struggle with sometimes, but also feel really free is, is that both in the Vonnegut rule and in Holly Black's time bomb rule and in this idea is that you can be explicit. You know, and in fact, that's part of your power mm-hmm. because you can trick readers, mm-hmm. but you just have to fulfill the promise. Just don't confuse them. Yeah, yeah. And it, it feels so simple, but so powerful to just in the first line or first paragraph, tell your reader the ending of the story. The other thing that I loved about this story was the relationship between Bibi and Azinma, the two sisters, and their mother. And it comes to this climax when uh, Bibi is beaten by her partner after he freaks out that she mentioned the word marriage. And she comes home having been a bit of a shit and fallen out with uh, her mother and her sister. And she comes home and soon she is sobbing and her mother is still stone-faced, but it's a wet face that she turns away so no one can see. Azinma takes Bibi to the bathroom, the one they've shared and fought over since they were old enough to speak. She sits her on the toilet lid and begins to clean around her bruises. When she is done, it still looks terrible. When Bibi stands to examine her face, they are both in the mirror. I still look terrible, Bibi says. Yes, you do, Azinma replies. And soon they are laughing, and in their reflection they notice for the first time that they have the exact same smile. Ah. Oh. I I love the transition in that paragraph where it flicks around from everybody hates each other and is turning away from each other through this moment of incredible tenderness to a moment of connection. Yeah. And and she does it all in like five lines. Beautiful. Thanks for listening, readers. We have probably not talked about all of the stories that you've loved recently. Nor did we say all of the things one could possibly say about these stories that we did pick. So if you would like to give us your recommendations and tell us your thoughts, you can find us on Facebook. We are facebook.com slash storylogical. You can also find us on Twitter, where we are at storylogical. Which is story. Like the word. O. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle. You can follow him on Twitter uh, at Kuvols. And you can follow her on Twitter at E.G. Kosh. And for links 
gifts of an appropriate and inappropriate nature and uh, a chance to listen to all of our past episodes you can find us at our home on the web storylogical.com thanks for listening happy reading beautiful history tears us apart and brings us together just for your benefit emma I, i really like where that scene ends which is BB asking, why are you still nice to me? Oh, and Enzima yeah. saying, habit. You know, it, it's just this fucking bungee cord on my back. I just can't get away from it. I, I had another five lines written out because I think it's an amazing paragraph, but I, I got self-conscious it was going on too long. <laughs>